Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. And I'm Kent Fellows. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Economics uh, at the University of Calgary, uh, and I hold a position at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. In March 2022, Environment and Climate Change Canada released its 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan. The goal is to reduce greenhouse gases across the economy to as little as 40% of 2005 levels in less than eight years. But not everyone's convinced the timeline is feasible. And the reduction plan isn't as clear about the way forward as some would like. And what about the viability of Alberta's oil industry along the way? Kent joins us for insight into a way forward for the province and the country. Kent, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. You describe Environment and Climate Change Canada's 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan as a plan to have a plan. Why so? I think we're waiting on a lot of the specifics of this sort of new phase for climate policy in Canada. Um, you know, we're coming off of a lot of development on the carbon pricing, both uh, the federal backstop plan and some provincial plans, uh, different plans for large emitters and for consumer level stuff. That's been going on for a number of years. We're now through sort of the court challenges on that. And we've kind of got stability on that side of things. Um, but this new phase where we're looking at more ambitious phase outs, where there's specific focus on the oil and gas sector, um, that's all sort of still for consultation and, and for public discussion. So I think we've got a nice baseline there. The new stuff is stuff that I, I think I, I get the sense is still being worked on. So there are simply details missing from the model. I think there are details missing because we're still trying to figure out exactly what they look like. So I'm most focused on the oil and gas side of things. There was a very recent discussion paper sort of outlining some ways to tackle oil and gas specifically. But it's interesting that it's it's a bit of a departure from the types of policies we've seen to date. Um, the carbon tax, which has sort of been the cornerstone of, of the entire uh, decarbonization um, uh, climate change policy at the federal level, that's got a, a, a very strong root in sort of academic fundamentals of, of how economists uh, think about dealing with uh, greenhouse gas emissions. It's a, it's a broad-based tax. It applies to all sectors of the economy. There's this output-based allocation side of it to try to protect competitiveness and, and try to address carbon leakage. And that's all fairly firmly rooted in academic fundamentals uh, going back, you know, what we know about taxing externalities. This new side of things and the new reports that are coming out with this sort of more ambitious planet for oil and gas is really focused on one specific sector or dealing with sectors differently. Um, and that, that kind of undermines some of the work that's already been done on carbon pricing. So it's a little bit surprising to see, and, and we're also waiting to see exactly what that's going to mean. And, and I think uh, the policymakers are trying to figure that out as well. So it's, it's you know, it's kind of come out of left field. I'm surprised more people aren't talking about it this summer uh, as, as those plans have been announced. But I expect that to be a big conversation going into the fall. When we think of 2030, it's eight years away, but from a public policy perspective, that's almost right around the corner. How do you feel about the timeline to fill in some of the blanks? I mean, it is, it's ambitious, um, but there's a mix there, right? The longer we wait, and, and the climate scientists tell us this, the longer we wait, the harder the transition becomes. So there's one sense that does make, make uh, a great deal of sense to get out in front of this and, and try to be more ambitious. But the flip side of that is, 
you know, we're coming through a summer where we've seen, I don't think it's unfair to, critic, to characterize these as a near energy crisis or energy crisis, depending on the parts of the world that you're in. You know, all summer we've been watching those uh, retail gasoline prices very closely. We've got some relief very recently, but uh, how long lived that is and what that looks like. Also, the idea that we're talking about, you know, a dollar sixty a liter or, or thereabouts as being relief, you know, two years ago, who would have been talking about that as as high prices. So I, I think there is a needed balance here between maintaining affordability and also trying to be ambitious on the climate targets. 2030 is a very short timeline. There's a lot of, of um, momentum in the economy on the way these things go and the way they work. Um, and, and there is a risk here that if we try to enact policies that are not well thought out, they're going to have adverse effects. What role is the permitting process playing in your skepticism that we can achieve these emissions reductions in short order? Um, so I, I think, you know, for, for permitting for um, pieces of infrastructure, you know, whether it's oil and gas or other pieces of linear infrastructure, you know, we do have this mounting problem on the timelines on access to capital. It's, it's easy to forget um, that as we talk about decarbonization, we do need new capital assets to do that. You know, electricity, we're probably looking at pretty significant build-outs of new types of generation, so low-carbon generation, renewable generation. We're looking at new build-outs for transmission infrastructure because that helps with the electricity sector to make it look better. Um, if you're looking at oil and gas specifically and you're trying to get um, emissions intensities down there, you know, you need permitting for brownfield installations, whether that's carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Or, or something similar. Um, and right now, we're in a situation where over the last decade, two decades, the timelines for all of those regulatory and permitting approvals have gotten longer and longer and longer. Um, you know, it's one thing to look at that in the oil sands, but even for linear infrastructure, for stuff like transmission lines, um, that has become a much longer term proposal than it would have been 30 years ago. And that impacts our access to capital. Investors looking to invest in this kind of infrastructure are really concerned with, okay, what's the time to repayment? And if you're starting off spending money on due diligence, spending money on engineering, spending money on permit applications, and you're now waiting, say, 5, 10, 15 years to start realizing a return on that instead of a year to, to five years, that really changes the game in terms of your capital costs because you're carrying a lot of those costs for a longer term before you start to see cash flow. That's a problem and that's something that, that we have to get around. Um, not steamrolling the regulations that are there. All the regulations we have are there for a reason and, and usually it's a good reason, but trying to figure out what can we do to reduce the burden on, on um, infrastructure investment to try to, to smooth out those timelines have more security uh, or, or more certainty in permitting. You know, a, a quick no uh, is still a no, but it's better than than a very delayed no. And in some cases, it's better than a very delayed yes. You know, quick decisions tend to be better than long-term decisions because they help capital investors focus on where they want to put their money. Even if we have the capital, even if we have the infrastructure and shovel-ready plans, do we have the skilled labor? I think that's another question, um, and and um, that one's harder to predict, right? Because it's it's hard to figure out exactly what we're going to need uh, for labor on some of these proposals. 
Uh, I'm probably more optimistic about that than, than lots of people are. That may be a consequence of me being here in Western Canada where we have, uh, you know, just a great wealth of, of good quality engineers with transferable skills. Uh, you know, some of those have been working in oil and gas and, and some of those skills would transfer quite well. Um, but I think there is a question there about, you know, are we investing correctly in educational programs? Are we encouraging that? But that is also something that you kind of want the market to deliver, right? Um, industrial policy on education and building skilled labor runs a really high risk that you're going to train workers who then aren't useful. Um, if instead those workers are choosing the field they're going into based on the economic promise of that field, those that tends to have slightly better outcomes. But I think there are definitely things we could look at um, in terms of immigration policies, in terms of education and job licensing. Um, so I'm very cautiously optimistic um, that we can that we can make that work depending on the policies and again depending on the speed. As you said, 2030 is a really tight timeline. You know, if you're trying to train someone with an undergraduate degree, you're already starting four years back from that. So um, these are definitely, you know, that that's, again, the reason why we want to start thinking about these things early on. Uh, but I think there is some room for cautious optimism there. You're calling for greater policy certainty and durability. What does that mean? Is, is your concern that partisan changes in government will lead to changes in policy halfway through the process? I think part of that's related to to uh, partisan changes. You know, when you have when you have governments that come in and try to undo what the previous administration did. But I think even inside of governments, you know, we're 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 into another uh, liberal term at the federal level. And I, I mean, I don't want to want to dump on them specifically because I don't want to make this a partisan discussion. But we had that broad-based carbon price. That's a signal that the uh, that the government uh, that private industry had on the climate ambition. You know, they had committed to a very specific path for the carbon price increases, the carbon tax increases. Now they're talking about layering an oil sands emissions cap or an oil and gas emissions cap on top of that. And so that removes some of the certainty. If you want industry to make good faith investments in decarbonization, uh, I think it's really important to have that durability there so that they know where the payoffs are and where the market is. Um, if you're sitting in oil and gas today and you're wondering whether you want to make an investment in a carbon capture utilization and storage facility, um, that oil sands emissions cap looms really, really heavily on that. Because even if you're reducing your intensity through this investment, there's a potential future there where the cap shrinks faster um, than the market can handle and you end up shutting down production. Well, now you've made a good faith investment in reducing your emissions intensity, but because you didn't get to zero, you might end up cutting uh, production and that's going to hurt your cash flow and that's going to hurt your, your capital repayment. So it is uh, a sector or, or a situation where the perfect can be a really big enemy of the good. And I think that's why these stable longer term policies are so important, that once you had that carbon tax in place, you started to see some of that movement, some of that investment, more firms making net zero commitments, that kind of thing, predicated on them knowing this is what the carbon tax is going to be in 2022. This is what it's going to be in 2025. This is what it's going to be in 2030. That lets them do their own discounted cash flow analysis. That lets them do their, their analysis on whether they think they're going to get a return on different investments and where they can make smart investments in new infrastructure. Tell me about the need for increased 
intergovernmental coordination on a project like this. Is, is it even feasible to herd 13 cats? Uh, this is a common uh, um, Canadian problem, right? And I, so I've got colleagues in the law faculty who are probably much better, uh, much better informed on this and can make more of an expert opinion. Um, I think it's doable, uh, you know, regardless of the frictions that we've had over the carbon tax to date and the Supreme Court challenges, uh, you know, that has been smoothed over. We have now court precedent that, yes, the carbon tax as a broad-based backstop uh, is legal. It is something that the federal government uh, had had mandate over. But in all of these things, you know, the, the outcomes tend to work better if you've got everyone rowing in the right direction from the start. Sometimes that's not feasible. Wherever it is, uh, I think it's it's important that, that uh, we try to attain that. Um, there's a great saying, and I wish I could remember who I'm quoting it from, but it's too good not to, not to quote. Uh, the red tape becomes a lot less thinner if everyone has buy-in on, on the direction you're going in. So, I mean, these regulatory restrictions, um, you know, we can work through them much more effectively if people believe in the outcome and it's a shared outcome. And so I think, you know, there's room for the Council of the Federation, the, the provincial premiers to, to play ball on that. There's room for provincial federal collaborations to the extent possible when that engagement is being done in good faith. Let's talk about your upcoming paper for the Institute. Canada's ERP is a part of a global push to wean the world off fossil fuels. The expectation is that prices will fall as demand falls. Canada's oil, though, is perceived to be relatively high cost. Does that make our crude uncompetitive in the world? Yeah, so this is a common narrative, right? We hear this all the time that uh, the oil sands are a high cost producer. You know, we, we have conventional production as well, but the conversation is often back to the oil sands because it is the larger chunk of production now and it's the more emissions intense one. And we hear time and time and again how expensive this crude oil is. Um, but if you look at recent events, you know, we were just talking about how we have high oil prices and high retail gasoline prices over the last sort of six to, to 12 months. But you only have to go back a couple of years in Western Canada to remember a time where we had very, very low prices. And in fact, briefly, very briefly, a negative price for West Texas Intermediate because of, of uh, um, you know, frictions in the spot market there. And what's interesting to remember and really important to remember is we didn't see a slowdown in production in Western Canada in the oil sands. We did not see oil sands operators shutting in in these low price environments. And there were some analysts, uh, more the ones outside the energy industry that aren't focused on oil and gas specifically, we had some analysts that seemed a little perplexed by this. But if you start drilling into the economics, it actually kind of makes sense. Um, oil sands operators have been competitive on sort of an average cost basis. That you take all the costs that go into producing a, a barrel of oil, so that's your fixed costs, your operating costs, even your, your transmission costs or, or pipeline costs to get them to a hub. You put those all together, and, and we know they're competitive because those investments got made, right? If they weren't competitive, those investments wouldn't have got made in the first place. But what's interesting thinking about a longer-term environment is thinking about the capital cycles and thinking about that marginal cost. So for anyone uh, who's watching or listening that, that sort of remembers their undergraduate economics, there is this distinction between average cost, that's all your costs divided by all your production, and your marginal cost, and that's the cost of producing one more barrel. It's easy to think of these things as the same thing. They're not. We have these capital investments in oil and gas and the oil sands already. And so the capital cost is there. We can't recover it. But 
the marginal cost is actually quite low. And so we can get in discussion about, you know, capital cycles and what that means. But the short answer is what that means is, is as the price falls, oil sands production, at least legacy production, is not going to fall off very quickly because we're not actually a high cost producer. We're not really high average cost and we are very low marginal cost compared to some, some other fields. How concerned are you about a fall off in demand because there's been so much concern about peak demand for oil? We also have a peak supply problem, though. Yeah, so the supply side is really interesting. Um, and what you're seeing right now with these with this high cost environment, because we can use that as sort of a foil to talk about what happens when when um, when demand starts to drop off. Uh, everyone's sort of focused on they were trying to focus on U.S. shale. There's not really a story there. So now they're focused on OPEC and what's OPEC going to do or what's Russia going to do, because those are really the swing producers. OPEC functions differently sort of from, from the rest of the global market in that they are basically a cartel and a cartel of uh, state-owned um, producers primarily. And so OPEC is really the only organization that has what we would what an, an economist would call market power, that they can influence uh, by their own sole action the global prices of crude oil. Individual producers in Canada and North America really are too small to do that. You know, even thinking about the big oil sands producers, uh, Canadian Natural Resources, um, Suncor, those kind of guys, um, their production decisions are not going to have a huge impact on the global price because even though they're big here, they're small globally. So there's one sense in that as that demand starts to fall off, and I think it will um, with, with um, emissions reduction policies and the rise in market share of, of battery electric vehicles and, and all of these things contributing to a longer term trend, as that demand starts to fall off, the price probably isn't going to fall as fast as a lot of people think it is. And that's because OPEC and the large state-owned oil producers they're going to try to exercise that market power and they're going to trade off margins. They want that price to stay high. Um, they may not be able to keep it as high as it has been historically uh, as demand falls off, but they will cut production as demand falls off faster than uh, firms that don't have market price because if you can't increase the or market power, because if you can't increase your 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 if you can't increase the global price by cutting your own production, what you're making money on is whatever margin you have there. And so you're going to produce as much as you can to get that margin. You're not trading off the price cost margin against the quantity margin. And, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds on the economic stuff because I'm not teaching an undergrad class in economics here, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the basis of it. Um, then we can think about capital cycles as well and, and who does start to drop off first. So with that in the back of our minds that, okay, OPEC and, and the large state-owned oil producers, they've got market power. They're going to be trying to keep that price up by cutting production. As that price does start to fall, uh, who's going to start falling off first in terms of production outside of OPEC? And what it's going to be is it's going to be the conventional oil producers um, because of the decline curves on their wells. So when you drill a conventional well, and this is a really simplified uh, description of this, when you drill a conventional well, what happens is you start getting oil and you get a lot of oil up front. Um, it's sort of the low-hanging fruit. It's the stuff near the borehole that pours into the borehole, at least we hope it does, and you're producing that. As time goes on, those wells, the productivity starts to, to fall off. And it actually does it quite quickly. You're measuring this in, in years or in some case, maybe even in quarters, depending on the field and, and the local geography or um, um, uh, geology. Uh, but it's going to depend on where you drilled. 
The oil sands operators don't act like that. So in the back of your head, keep conventional. You've got to keep punching holes to keep your production up because those wells start to run dry. If you go a year or two years, you're cutting your production probably in, in half in the space of a couple of years if you're just relying on legacy wells. In the oil sands, it's a different game. You're not hunting for the oil. You know where it is. Uh, it's not just about the low-hanging fruit near the borehole because you're keeping the reservoir hot. You know, if, if you're in situ, you're pumping steam down to keep everything loose, to keep the production going. If you're mining, you're running trucks down and you're just scooping it out of the ground. And so the oil sands don't really have a decline curve. That These are assets that are multi-decade assets. Once you've set up your plant, you've got your fixed cost, you've got your steam plant or your mine, and you're just working the mine face or you're working the steam plant. So it's it's really the, the best description I've heard is it's the difference between kind of hunting and farming. So conventional, you're out there hunting for new oil, you're punching holes, you're producing oil sands, you're farming. You, you know, you have your fields, you know where they are and you're producing. And so as the price starts to fall off, yeah, the oil sands guys might not be happy, but they continue to make money, or at least they don't lose as much money if they're producing as long as that price is above their marginal cost. For conventional producers, it's an average cost thing because you have to think, am I going to make money not on this next barrel? Am I going to make money on this next well? And if the answer is no, you don't punch the hole. So it sounds like Canada's oil industry is far more insulated from the decline in demand in the coming years than a lot of policymakers have been making assumptions about. I think so, yeah. And I think that might actually be part of the reason of this increased federal focus on um, on the oil and gas sector specifically. You know, whether that policy is, is going to be a responsible one or not, we'll wait to see. But I think part of that focus is, okay, we have the carbon price and we're looking at it and they may not be getting the reductions on oil and gas they expected because even though those producers are working hard to get their emissions intensity down, the production's not dropping off because it's still economical to produce and it's going to continue to be economical to produce. Um, I don't want to give you the impression that we're completely insulated because the bottom line of these firms, you know, as, as demand starts to drop off and as the price comes down, you know, they will suffer on the economic side of things. But the difference is they will suffer less if they keep producing than if they stop producing. Because if you stop producing, you've got a capital asset there that's completely stranded. If you keep producing, as long as that price is above the marginal cost, as long as you can produce one more barrel of oil at a cost lower than, than the current price per barrel, it makes more sense to keep doing it. Um, you know, even if you're, you're not making the windfall profits that they might be making this summer with the high prices, uh, really, it, it still does make sense for them to keep producing. And so that's why when, when I think about redu emissions reduction policies in the oil sands, I think it's really important to focus on that emissions intensity, because if you come in with something that, that's going to lead directly to a production cut, and, and that's kind of what you're targeting, you're sort of, you know, you're, I don't want to say you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, but you're, you're hurting economic productivity in an industry and you're stranding assets that don't need to be stranded. If you focus on what can we do to incentivize reductions in emissions intensity, then the oil sands keep producing, they keep generating profits, and we hopefully get the reductions that we want out of that. So it really is this difference on the focus between the two margins, that if all you want to do is cut production, production somewhere else is going to fill that in. We are in a global market. Uh, you know, OPEC is going to think, oh, well, we don't have to cut production as much as we thought we did because now the oil sands aren't there, right? So there's still production there. And yes, there's a, a difference in emissions intensity between our production and foreign production, but 
a lot of those emissions are coming from end use when you're burning it in the tank. And some of the differences in emissions intensity may not be quite as big uh, as, as some might know. And I'm kind of the wrong person to talk to about emissions intensity. I, you know, that's not the side that I look at. Um, but I but I do know that you know it's really important to focus on reducing the intensity in the oil sands rather than thinking about reducing production directly. It sounds as though that if policymakers' assumptions about the durability of Canadian oil production are incorrect, that will have knock-on effects on future public policy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if if you're sitting there and you expect, okay, we're you know we're going to put in a broad-based carbon price and that oil sands will just disappear because they're not competitive, um, you're going to be surprised because they aren't going to disappear, right? Um, and so when you're thinking about projections economy-wide on what you want. Canada's emissions to, to look like in 2030 or 2035 or 2050, you need to bake in these assumptions about competitiveness of the sector. Um, and, and I'm not convinced that that's been done entirely accurately uh, because I think there is, like I said off the top, you know, there is this pernicious narrative that we are a high cost producer when that isn't really true and definitely isn't true in a, in a way that matters. And so if you're thinking about Canada's carbon budget and, and what fits in a decarbonizing Canada, you know, oil and gas and oil sands in particular have a really outsized contribution to that. You know, they're a huge chunk of Canadian emissions. And so when you're looking at Canada as a whole comprehensively and you're going to international negotiations um, you know, through, through the IPCC or, or whatever it has to be, um, if you're thinking responsibly about what Canada's emissions trajectories need to look like or should look like, it's really important that you recognize that problem is not one that's going to take care of itself. You know, you're not putting in a carbon price and having oil and gas or, or the oil sands just disappear because they're not competitive. Um, and that's why I think the industry is so focused on or was focused on you know, trying to get tax relief on, on carbon capture, utilization and storage. Uh, why they're so focused on the output based allocation and the carbon price. Why there is so much concern, even though we haven't heard that much of it yet, on discussions about uh, an oil and gas emissions cap, right? Because they're very concerned uh, on protecting their end uh, and protecting profitability and competitiveness in the sector. Um, but that's because they still see a future in the sector, even with the carbon tax in place. So the impact on public policy isn't just on emissions policies, but fiscal policies, labor policies, trade policies. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's the flip side of it. it. It's not just, you know, I've talked a lot about the investors and, you know, getting getting a return on capital. But the other thing that's really, really important and deserves more attention is the resource itself is a public resource, right? Um, you know, we have a royalty structure in Canada. We made a decision not to have a state-owned uh, enterprise running our oil and gas sector like like other countries do but the way we've got um, you know the way we're making sure that that's being stewarded correctly is with our uh, royalty structure uh, these firms pay provincial tax they pay federal tax and so there's a huge contribution there to uh, fiscal balances to to government revenues right um, Alberta has been very proud for a number of decades about our low tax environment um, and that we still have high quality services. That's due in large part to royalties. Um, I have colleagues that talk about the royalty roller coaster. You know, when times are good, we get a lot of royalties. When times are bad, we don't. And so there, there is some imbalance or some variance there. But Alberta, you know, depending on who you talk to, 
I don't think we've done the worst job in balancing that out and trying to save a little bit when times are good or make investments into longer term assets when times are good and then tightening the belt when times are bad. If we start thinking about this sector going forward, you know, there's a question there of what's going to replace oil and gas or is something going to replace oil and gas that if we do just introduce policies uh, that cut production, um, that's going to lead to a reduction in those royalties. I think we're going to see that anyways over the longer term to 2050. You know, this is not an industry that's going to be around forever. Uh, that that message I keep going back to is demand is going to fall. There's a question about how quickly and there's a question about when oil and gas and oil sands will start to drop off. I think they will at some point, but I think oil sands is going to be very durable. So when we think about policy, there's an impact of, you know, how quickly that drop off occurs uh, and are we ready for the transition that we have to make on the fiscal side of things, making sure that there are revenues and jobs and returns uh, to come up and, and replace that. Some of that will be in renewable production. Some of that, I think, you know, you have to talk to a futurist on what Alberta looks like in 2050. Before we let you go, what else should we be looking forward to in your upcoming paper on this topic? Uh, so I think uh, there's a few things. So that that conversation on capital cycles, um, I'm I'm really excited to go into depth on that a little bit more. Um, and that's me nerding out a little bit on uh, actually undergraduate economics. So uh, I hope there's something in it for for all readers. But anyone who who's uh, who reads it who remembers their their first or maybe even second year microeconomics courses, that's about as in depth as I'm getting on the economics side of things. You know, often the stuff we publish has a lot of calculus and models in it. I don't want to do that with this paper. I do want to talk to people who have a vague recollection of their undergraduate uh, economics. So, so there'll be something in there uh, for, for those folks. And, and I am going to talk a little bit about um, what uh, the emissions policies look like already. So not the new discussion paper so much because we're still waiting to see what happens on oil and gas specific policies, but certainly on, on the large emitters um, um, policy. So in Alberta, this is the tier regulation, but there's a federal um, one that, that parallels that. Um, and what that actually means, because I think that's misunderstood a, a lot as well, right? People think, oh, well, they're paying this tax, and so that's that's going to cause a huge cost. And that's partly true, but it's going to affect different producers in very different ways, because oil production in Alberta is not homogenous. There's a huge variation in um, the emissions intensity across the sector. And so I, I won't talk about specific firms, but thinking about the distribution there may actually and probably are a couple of oil sands facilities that are making more money with the tier regulation in place than they would be without carbon pricing at all. So there's sort of the little, that's a little teaser that you'll have to read the paper to see why. Um, but I think that's quite an interesting result. Kent, thank you for your time and insight today. My pleasure. Kent Fellows is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Look for his upcoming paper on the public policy implications of Canada's transition away from oil at cdhow.org. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, September 15th, Revisiting Inflation, a variation on the theme with Michael D. Bordo, the Board of Governors Professor of Economics and Director of the Centre for Monetary and Fiscal History at Rutgers University. That's at the Toronto headquarters. And on the 29th, Open Door Policy, Who Should Have Access to Home Value Data? Perspectives from Christopher Alexander, the president of Remax, and Paul Johnson of Rideau Economics and the former TD McDonald Chair in Industrial Economics at the Competition Bureau of Canada. Visit cdhow.org for details. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thank you for joining us. 
You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.